Um, I thought I would just give a very brief introduction because I don't know how many people know who I am or where I came from. But <laughs> some of them, um, Jenny and I have been working with international students and scholars for 25 years, uh, formally, full time. And um, an international student or a scholar is somebody who comes here to the United States for an education or a graduate degree or postdoc research work and that sort of thing, and then they go home. And we see this as perhaps the, the most strategic mission field on the entire planet. Uh, for, for all of the world's international students and scholars worldwide, um, we have about, well, I felt it's a little too loud, I think, for me. It's, but anyway, um, but uh, we, we have about 35% of the world's international students. They estimate that among today's international students here in the United States, which is pushing now one million, all right, they estimate that 50% of the next generation of world leaders are here in student form today. So this is an extremely strategic mission opportunity that God has brought to North America, to the body of Christ, for anybody to get involved in. We've been doing this full time. One of the capacities that I have is I'm a resource um, developer, and uh, I've got some books in the back, in the, on the table back there. The second row will hurt your wallet, but not much. Okay, the first row we got some freebies. So anything in the front row that you see on the little wooden table right there, you can take the first row for free, as many as you want. We have more under the table. Uh, but the back ones are Bible study materials. I'm going to show you what they are just very quickly. I can get all the housekeeping things out of the way. This is my first uh, Bible study that I wrote. This is called Storyteller's Bible Study. This is the only second edition Bible study ever written for international students and scholars in the United States, which means we've sold out of the first one. All right? This is, without a doubt, according to our data, without, uh, without I'm sorry, with, uh, with the records and the testimonies and we're hearing back, this is the most effective Bible study ever written for international students uh, in the United States. I stopped counting at 60 countries where missionaries have taken this to, and we're seeing Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, and Muslims coming to Christ, sometimes all in the same Bible study in North America, and in some places around the world, they're seeing just bump-ups where, where people are coming to Christ in, in larger numbers than they've ever seen. All right. So this is our first one. Uh, another book that I wrote is uh, Crossing Over with Parables. Jesus, oh, I forgot to tell you. This does worldview demolition like you've never seen. You never have to say anything negative about anybody else's religion or worldview. And what it does is systematically dismantles that by in, inserting into their minds and hearts the biblical... Uh, redemption story. This goes from Genesis 1-1 to Acts chapter 1 in 12 Bible stories. Okay? Uh, it's a complete teacher resource. We have everything you need in the back. Everything is reproducible. And the best, uh, and, and actually the, worth the price of the book, is the last appendix where we tell you how to explain the Trinity. And it's probably something you've never seen before because the material I got, I heard John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, uh, D. James Kennedy, when he was alive, on the radio, all three of them, quoting from a book that's been out of print for 85 years, I got a copy. I found a copy. So I put that, I, I distilled the 20 pages down to seven pages. It's in here. That alone is worth the price of the book. You can ask me later about the price. Now, the next, the next book, Jesus shows up as the storyteller here. These are storytellers with stories. These are stories as well, but Jesus now comes front and center. He's the storyteller. This is a teacher manual. You don't, there's no sources in the back you need to copy, you just need one of these, and you can go to town and have fun on that. The last Bible study I've written is To Your Faith. It comes from uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, where it says, add to your faith goodness, and add to goodness kindness, and those, those development. This is the only Bible study of its kind that will take a brand new international student believer and run them through a survey of the New Testament that, that they discover principles so that they can translate them into culturally specific patterns of obedience appropriate for their culture. In other words, we're not going to foist on them Western obedience response. Then they go back to a non-Western country and they, they sink as a believer because they don't know how that works. They, they see me doing it here in the West, but they're going to a non-Western country. And so this to get over those cultural response patterns that we Westerners have here as believers and helps response patterns to Christ as a new believer going back to their home country. I know that's a mouthful. Okay. But if you're interested, you can more about that later. Um, the last thing that I have here is um, 
uh, about 10 years ago, I started doing research, one of the things that I do, and I discovered that for every single international student and scholar in the United States, back in the day it was about 750,000, I discovered through a lot of extensive research over months of looking for data that there is an equal or greater number of Christian college students at the very same campuses that the internationals go to, and it's a one-to-one -one ratio. It dawned on me, if we could train those Christian kids to make one international student friendship in four years, it could be a game changer. All right? Now, and, and I, every, every high school kid, every college kid, I said, can you make one international student friend in four years? And they're like, yeah, what's next? I said, I'm glad you asked. I got something else for you. All right? Uh, today, I also realized that if you wait until the Christian kids get to the secular campuses, it's too late. You've got to reach them while they're in high school. All right? So I wrote a 434-page teacher training manual for the recon method. All right? This makes a great doorstop on 90 days. All right? But this has everything that you need. Um, Dave, back in the day, I was work, early working on this. We have a, we have a website. Uh, this, this is the only high school Bible curriculum in the, in the country up by a national network, and I'll tell you what that means. Uh, what that means is that if, if you have a, a senior or a senior and they want to they really get radical in their faith with Jesus and they want to live for the Lord, no holes barred, get out of, get out of his way, they're just going to go and they're going to serve the Lord and they're not going to take no for an answer. All right? This is serious Bible stuff. Most high school kids probably can't handle this. <laughs> okay, it's like cayenne pepper, you know, don't touch and don't sniff. Uh, but anyway... So what this does, we, when they go through this training and they get accepted by the college that they, they, they're going to go to, all right, they can go on the Recon website, go to sign up for Recon. They can find their school on our website. They can scroll down. They can click on. They can register themselves as I'm a Recon student going to such and such university. When they all do that, guess what happens? They find each other school by school on our website. They can make small groups online. They can do Facebook, they can do Skype, they can do whatever they want, and you swap names. They can start virtual groups the summer before they get to campus, so therefore, no Christian student these days needs to go to college and never know another Christian until they get there and they hope they can find one. Those days are history if, if the church moves on this opportunity. The trouble is, the church isn't moving on that opportunity, not yet. Okay, now I've got a. Uh, this is the student workbook. The student keeps this and takes it to school with them. And if you want to look at this later, but if you can kind of see the pages, uh, and I know you're really far away, but does this look like a Bible curriculum to you? Okay, I mean, do you kind of see that? Okay, we have field, te field tested this nationwide. The results came back. Seventy-five percent were like overwhelmingly positive about this whole thing. Um, but we had uh, a family in Texas, and they had some unsaved neighbors so they wanted to get on the national field test and so they were they were um we mailed them all the stuff for the for the the field test and the mother wrote back and she because we started with a mixed audience and she explained what that meant that when they got the when they got the materials and the kids got a look at this the, the, the workbook and they were going oh man this is so cool well they ran down the street and told their unsaved friends and the friends came up to the mother, the Christian mother, and she said, why are your kids all excited about Bible? And she said, well, you can just kind of look through, the, look through the workbook. And they were stunned. And they said, can we do this too? <laughs> okay. So Christian mom had her Christian kids starting homeschool Bible studies with this, and she said, she said six weeks into it, there's no more mixed audience. The neighbors came to Christ. And it's not, it's not evangelism stuff. This is not fly, easy or, or fluffy stuff. So, so we're seeing God move through these things, through these resources that we've developed. Uh, for the last 20 years, I've been traveling the country doing all kinds of stuff, uh, going to national conventions and conferences. God has really, really blessed what we've been doing. And not only that, but Jenny and I have seven kids. We raised them all 27 years homeschooling. All of them came to Christ. The five who are married all chose Christian spouses, and we are waiting for grandchild number 19, all of, all of whom are being raised in the faith. So God gets the credit. He's allowed us to have a little bit of fun along the way, and it's just been a wonderful 
ministry. So, um, we, you know, we, we, we've, uh, we're just grateful to the Lord. Um, tonight, we're going to look at Greek writers at negative 10. Uh, I know that doesn't mean anything to anybody right now. It should by the time we're done. And one of the things that I like to do is we're going to have interactive talking tonight. So what I'm going to be doing along the way is raise some questions that are not rhetorical questions. We're going to go and I'm going to throw some questions and hope that the gentleman can jump in and help me out with the, some of the answers. Okay, I'm going to ask you to connect dots and all that kind of stuff so you have to pay attention. All right, we good? Okay. Um, we're going we're gonna to go to Acts chapter 17 tonight. And um, how many of you have ever seen the Where's Waldo books? Okay. Anybody have kids or grandkids? Yeah, we, we had those books in our house. Where's Waldo? They have these uh, compilations of pictures and all that kind of stuff. And this is Waldo here. And you have to find Waldo in this outfit in these pictures here. And they have multiple pictures. And it's a great way to get kids to, to fine-tune their visual acuity when they're small, they're growing up. You know, where's the, you know anybody heard the, seen the Goldbug books? Okay, no, not so much on Wally. Now, somebody might be wondering, why in the world do we have Wally here? Anybody know anything about where Wally is versus Waldo? If you don't know, okay, Martin Hanford right here, he was a British guy, is a British guy, he's still alive as far as I understand, and um, he wrote these collection of books called Where's Waldo? Wally was the version in Britain. Waldo was the version in America. Okay, so Wally and Waldo, same character, but you can tell which side of the pond that the books are on depending upon whether it's Wally or Waldo. Now, you might want to say, okay, well, I don't see this in Acts chapter 17, so uh, I'm just making a bridge here because what we're going to do is we're going to say, ask the same question, but where is the Apostle Paul tonight? Okay? And in our study, as we've been going through the book of Acts, you see Paul, Silas, and Timothy are on their second missionary journey, which begins in chapter 16. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, or if you're lazy or tired or whatever, we're going to have every single verse we're going to look at on the screen. So if you can do it both ways or one or the other. All right? So uh, Paul is going to be going all the way down to Athens right here in the Greek uh, peninsula here. Uh, east or west of the Aegean Sea. So we're going to be going to Athens. And let's see. Come on, baby. Okay, there we go. All right, now this is a picture of Athens done by historical authors. And the way they were able to construct these pictures is because if you go to Athens today, you can see in the ground floor, in the ground, you can see the remnants of the foundations of the buildings. And based upon what writers said and that kind of a thing, artists have really come to be able to pretty accurately um, uh, illustrate the, the, what the buildings looked like when Paul was there, and actually before that, hundreds of years before that. I'll show you another picture right here in just a minute. Uh, here's a little bit more of a bird's eye look, and, and you see all these buildings here. Here and here, you got the Parthenon up here, buildings over here and here, and in front of every single one of these buildings, and even surrounding sometimes some of the buildings, there were statues and idols. All right? It was a completely spiritually dark pagan place. Very, very dark. And um, matter of fact, uh, you can see the remnants of these idols. If you go to Athens today, you can walk down the main drag, the main interstate, if you will, walking into Athens, and there were idols on both sides of the road. And it was, it was not unlike a pantheon. You see this character here. Looks like he was a victim of ISIS or something here. He's lost his head. But here you've got a serpentine kind of tail that comes around from his knees and kind of winds back up this way. And so you, you can see that they had all kinds of, you know, the Indian gods and stuff like that. You know, you got animal parts and all that kind of stuff. It was very much like that in Athens as well. And so uh, when you walk down the dragon, you see here's a human being right here and another one right here. You see the size of these things. Well, Paul, when he went to Athens, walked right down this road with idols and statues on both sides. Now, does anybody know what Paul thought of idols? Just off the, off the cuff. Anybody know what, what Paul thought? What, what did he think of them? Were they, were they valuable? No. Okay. Just the opposite. All right? Paul thought that these things were absolutely worthless. All right? Now, does anybody know what you do with worthless things? You throw them out. All right? And one, of the, one day I was walking, I was, I was driving down the street. It just happened to be on a certain one of two days during the week. And, and I got a picture of what Paul must have thought when he saw this. Okay, now you want to see what Paul thought? Check this out. <laughs> okay, he saw garbage. 
trash, refuse, okay? He's walking down the street, idols on both sides. They got the flowers and the food at the bases and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and you know, he's like, this is worthless. This is trash. So I'm driving down the street. I saw these go, this is exactly what Paul thought. Matter of fact, we can confirm it right here. Uh, well, okay, the next slide. Athens here, uh, this is by Xenophon. He was a B.C. fella, and he said the whole of it, the whole of Athens, is one great altar, one sacrifice and votive or dedicated offering to the gods. The entire city was dedicated to this multiplicity of gods. There was nothing in Athens that wasn't sacred to some god, to somebody, somewhere. You couldn't get away from it. All right? Now, here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He wrote 1 Corinthians after he was in Athens, and he said, What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Yeah, (laughs) that's what he thought. Okay, so no fellowship, no connection, Take out the trash, take the idols with you, and let's dispense with this and let's get back to real life, okay? So we're going to start in Acts chapter 17, verse 17. And so he says, Therefore Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. This was Paul's kind of MO. Any kind of a city where there was a gathering, where there was people, he'd be out there. He'd be hanging out, trying to start conversations, being there, being the witness. Um, I know when I was introduced by the young, young fella, uh, I, I want to say something that a lot of Christians today still have not either learned or maybe they forgot it. Do you know the Bible when it uses the word witness? I have yet to find it in a place where it is used as a verb of sharing your faith. Anybody ever hear that before? When you use the word witness, it almost always, 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 except for maybe being Jesus witnessing about the Father and all that kind of stuff, but that was a different kind of a witness, right? But witness really means a legal, it's, it's a legal term where you go into court and you testify of something that you know. But the word witness is, is overwhelmingly used more as a noun than anything else. And that has huge implications. One of the implications is that a witness is not something we go to the mall on Tuesday nights or we go to Saturday the beach and hang out tracks. I mean, there's a place for that. I'm not saying that's not a good thing. But what I'm saying is, a lot of people, when they think witness, I've got to go do something, okay? So you, you, you sign up for the beach thing on Saturday, and, you know, you get the sunblock on and all that kind of stuff, and you go down, and you're, you're shaking, passing out, you know, and then you're done, it's 4 o'clock, you know, punch your card, okay, I'm done until next week, right? But if witness is a ver, I'm sorry, is a noun, that's a 24-7, 365 thing. The question is, what kind of witness are we? Not a a clock-punching time thing. How much of a witness am I? How good of a witness am I? Wherever I go, I am a witness of Christ. Okay? Something to think about. Anyway, um, let's keep going. That's where Paul was doing. Now, the marketplace, agora in the Greek, was a place for business, selling merchandise, and food, holding trials, public discussions, and debates, and various kinds of assemblies and meetings. Yay, assemblies. Okay. But anyway, um, now... Does any, can anybody think of a place like that in South Florida that kind of fits this? It doesn't have quite everything that uh, the Greek marketplace had. Anybody think of something? Gentlemen? What? A mall, perhaps. Okay. Anybody else got an idea? Up in Fort Lauderdale, they got a, the biggest one, in, in, they say, in, in the country. I'm sorry? Swap shop. Swap shop, yeah. You know, you can get anything from... From jewelry to carpet, the lawnmowers to I mean you name it. Now you don't you may not be able to do trials and you know public discussions and that kind of stuff, you know, guilty. You know. But um, but but anyway, but yeah, the swap shop would be a very classic Western application of the Greek agora. Uh, so and now now what we're gonna do here is we're gonna look at the Epicurean philosoph- uh, Stoic philosophers because these were the two guys that Paul the groups of guys that Paul met in the Agora, okay? And so uh, there, there were two groups, Epicurean. Now, the Epicurus are right in here at the top. We're going to go from left to right. So the Epicureans were founded by Epicurus. 
They believed in deism or materialism. Anybody know what deism is? We, materialism just means everything is made of material stuff. Okay? Anybody know what deism is? If you don't, that's okay. Uh, no, that's pantheism. Yeah. Anybody else got a guess? Deism says or believes that God, some God, somewhere, somehow, created the universe, wound it up like a clock, and then went on personal and total permanent vacay, vacation, and never could be contacted again. And everything's just kind of running down. So that was what deism is. Stoics, okay, let me back up. Uh, no spiritual realities. Gods, if they have a God, that he was only the creator. Uh, the, gods don't care about man. They believe in atomistic evolution. Atomistic comes from the word atom. It just means that back in the, even the Greek days, 500 years B.C., they understood that there were these little things called atoms. That's what they called them. And when they kind of got cobbled together and they started to grow, they made larger and more complicated organisms and things like that. So you thought Charles Darwin was onto something. He's like 2,000 years late. All right? But they had this belief back in pre, uh, you know, pre-BC or pre-AD uh, Greece and that kind of thing. Uh, Epicurus is also cited for the, for the, as being the guy who wanted to uh, be party all the time, all right? You know, he was the party god. And so or he was the guy who believed in, in partying all the time. That actually is a misnomer because when the 17th century philosophers came along in Europe, they saw Epicurus's writings and they said, wow, you know, this guy, there's nothing here, nobody cares, we can just go out there and party all the time. But what, that's not exactly what Epicurus believed. Epicurus believed that since we are in this physical body and we're all going to die. The smartest thing you can do and the smartest goal that you can have is to be free from pain. He would be the poster child for Tylenol. Okay? Take some of these, pain-free. And so, so if you get really stupid drunk, all right, you're going to have some problems, especially if you're driving home in your chariot, you know, and you have a, you know, a DUI and all that kind of stuff, you know, drinking under the influence. You do drugs, you do stupid things, and what? You're pregnant? Oh no, 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 you know. So you have problems when you party too much. So Epicurus was saying, be smart, don't hurt yourselves, don't cause pain, and if you get through life with a lot less pain, you're a winner. That's what his philosophy was. It wasn't the whole party thing. Uh, Epicurus, in their uh, this view. Uh, appeal to the Sadducees because the Sadducees, believe it or not, were religious leaders in Israel who did not believe in any spiritual realities. No resurrection, no God, no, no, any of those kind of things. And they also appealed to the Greeks here. All right? Now the Stoics were started by Zeno of Cyprus and the word Stoics come from the word Stoa in the Greek and that was because they sat on the back porch, the back Stoa of Zenos's house. So the people who sit on the Stoas are the Stoics. Okay, and that's where they got the name, all right? So they believed in pantheism, and like my friend over here said, these is where God is in everything and everything is in God. All right? Another way to think of pantheism is this, that uh, the physical world is the body of God, and God is the spirit of the universe. Okay, so they kind of just mix and match and form, and, so, and that's why in India today they believe in pantheism, and so you cannot step on bugs, kill animals, and all that kind of stuff. Holy cows are literally holy cows. Okay, holy smoke is holy smoke. That's why you get that stuff, and that's where it comes from the philosophy of pantheism. Uh, they believe in formal duty, self-discipline, universal reason, world, soul, and harmony with nature. Okay? And so they, they were similar to the Pharisees because these guys were legalists. They were rigid, you know, follow the rules and all this kind of stuff, make harmony between you and all that kind of stuff. And that, this more appealed to the Romans. So these two kinds of, of philosophers bump into Paul at the Agora. And they said, wow, this guy's really got some strange teachings. So this is what they said. And so these two groups of philosophers took him, that's Paul, and brought him to the Areopagus. This is the whole debate center, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know And that was good. They're, they're thinking, they're hearing, they're asking questions. For all of the Athenians and the foreigners, check this word out, foreigners, who were there, spent their time in or to hear some new thing. Now, there's something today that is exactly like some new thing. You know what it is? (laughs) 
turn on your news and what, what, what's the first thing you see? Breaking news. Okay? And it doesn't make any difference how big or small it is. You know, so-and-so just had a dog run over. Oh, no, we've got a reporter on the scene. You know, and they, and they go off in this crazy, you know, ridiculous thing. I mean, except for the purple people who are hurt. But, you know, okay, some new thing. This is exactly what Athens was like. Breaking news. There's this guy come in. He's talking about all kind of weird things. Get down here. We don't, you don't want to miss it. All right? Now, they had Athenians there, and they had foreigners here. You had international people from all over the Roman Empire that came to Athens just to hear breaking news. And the thing is, they spent all their time in nothing else. I don't know where they ate, who fed them, where they slept. I mean, you know, they're just out there, you know, scooping it all up. All right? And, and, and I, as I was thinking about this, there are actually two things today that mimic the whole of Athens in this kind of uh, Anybody know what they might be? Internet is one. Okay? The other one is what? They're all over the country. I'm sorry? No, not that. Anybody else? Got a thought? They're all over the United States. Where do they, where do they hang out? When they're done hanging out where? <laughs> College and university campuses. That is exactly like the Internet. It's exactly like Athens. And, and you can find every single off-the-wall goofball and whacked-out idea on a university campus. I have been there for 25 years, not just in South Florida, but all around the country. I mean, when I, when I travel and I get to a city and I, I'm making my plans and I'll call them up and I'll say, hey, hey, I'm coming into town. You know, you got any place that I can, you know, speak a Bible study over there? And you go, you're, Bill, you're coming? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, how long? Give me the dates. And they just start lining up meetings for me. I mean, it's really, it's really been a, a fun ride. So, so you've got an Athens at university campuses and right in the convenience of your own den or library or whatever it is where you have your little computer to monitor and you're all hooked up to the internet and you can, you can find any kind of goofball whacked out idea on the internet as well. All right? So what we're going to see Paul doing here is very, very apropos for life in, in Western America right now. Verse 21. So then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. He's got center stage. This is like, this is like center court in Wimbledon. Okay, philosophy, ideology, worldview, the whole thing. And so we can really, we should pay attention about what he's going to say and how he's going to say it because he's going to be speaking to our culture. He's going to be teaching us how we engage this messed up culture that we find ourselves in today. So what does he say? He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Now, we want to look at this word religious and see what it means. This is a word with two primary meanings. Number one, showing reverence to the gods. And number two, superstitious, literally worshiping demons. Okay? Now, let's ask a question. And the question is, if you are going to speak to a crowd of people and you know they come from a religious background, please with yours and you want to get a favorable hearing, which meaning would you be indicating by very religious? Now, if you want to, I'll go back to the, the two definitions. Which of these two are you going to use, or what do you mean by saying very religious, if you're looking to win an audience? Number one or number two? Okay, how about number one? How about number two? Okay, number two, just you just lost your audience. <laughs> okay, because if you say, "Hey, you guys are worshiping demons," now that may be true, but if you want to win them, okay, see, you're saying the truthful thing, but you don't want to say it so loudly or so directly or so bluntly that you go, "I'm done with you," and they're out the door, and then you've lost your whole conversation. All right, so it would be number one. All right, and I thank you for your honesty for raising your hand on number two. So. We're going to go, for, go with number one, okay? They are very religious, showing reverence to the gods. And that is a fact as well, too. All right, now look at what Paul's motive here is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It says, For though I am free from all men, and I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more, 
To those who are without law, I became as without law, not being without law toward God, but being under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now, this is not a trick question I'm going to ask you that I'm asking you right now. And that is, do you see a phrase up there that happens three times? Look at what he's saying. He sa- I, I clipped it from three different verses, 1921 and 22b. There's a phrase. I'm going to click the thing and I'm going to have it underlined. See if you can find it. Anybody find a, a, a phrase that's used three times there? Okay. All right. Check this out. There it is. That I might win more that I might win those, and that I might by all means save some. You see, this is Paul's desire. He's, he wants to win arguments, but not at the, exa- not the expense of losing the opportunity to win souls as well. And that's something that the church really has to do a better job on when we're out there talking and mixing with uh, the, the people from the culture. Okay, verse 24. So he says, As I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, I am here to proclaim to you. Now, does anybody know why the Greeks would put a statue up called to the unknown God? Anybody know why he would do that? Yes, sir. Yeah, in case they missed, you cover their back. <laughs> okay, we got all these guys, we've heard of this one, this one, this one, all are up there, but in case we missed one or two, you know, we'll lump them all together, and this is the unknown God in case we missed one. Very good. Okay? Now, I want to show you something here. A lot of people have said, a lot of critics, Bible critics and stuff, they say, are you kidding me? An altar to the unknown God? That doesn't even make sense, even though we know better. All right? So, I want to show you other people outside the Bible, Greeks who saw the very same kind of statues. Look at this. Philostratus. Okay, now look where he lives. I'm sorry, the, the time frame. Uh, 17, uh, uh, 170 to 172, uh, he's about 200 years after Paul. And he says, he was a Greek sophist, and he said in Life of Apollonius that at Athens, where there are even unknown divinities, have altars erected to them. All right? Another fella, look at this, uh, about 50 to 60 years after Paul, Pausanias said, there was a Greek geographer, and he said in the uh, description of Greece that there are altars of gods called unknown. 50 to 100 years after Paul, Paul was there first. He saw them 60 to 100 years later. These statues are still standing, cited and visited and confirmed by secular people, not in the Bible. Now, the other thing where he says to the unknown God, without knowing means they are ignorant. Anybody like to be ignorant? Anybody like to tell people you're ignorant? (laughs) Okay. Ignorant means, you know, you don't know what you're talking about, right? So, so saying we don't really know exactly what we're doing, but we're trying, and we're hoping God's whoever they are, whatever they are, wherever they are, they're going to be able to curry up favor and all that kind of stuff, and they're going to be uh, accepting us. So, so they're outsiders. Now, uh, outsiders is a New Testament term that is regularly uh, describes unbelievers. I'm going to give you three verses here, just so you'll know, but this is not the extent of the entire New Testament on this term. But this is the way... Inspiration by the Holy Spirit describes non-Christians. All right? Look at Col- uh, Colossians 4.5. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. 1 Thessalonians 4.15. That you may walk properly toward those who are outside. And finally, 1 Timothy 3.7. Moreover, this is about an elder. Uh, moreover, he must have, the elder, must have a good testimony among those who are outside. Anybody know what they're outside of? Church? What else? Christ, the faith, yeah, anything. Anything that's, that's, you know, in Christ versus in Adam, in the church versus outside the church. Okay, so they're inside. We are inside. Not just the building, but we're in Christ. We're, we're the family of God, all right? So this is talking about people who are not on the inside. They're on the outside looking in if they're looking in, all right? So that's how the New Testament describes them. For years I've been going around saying, oh yeah, they're pagans and all that kind of stuff. And then I read an article and I thought, you know, that sounds kind of, um, you know, negative and critical and stuff. But outside, I mean, that's just kind of a position thing or geography, if you like geography. So anyway, now, angle scale for outside. Anybody ever seen this before? I just want to make sure if anybody's got a... You've seen this thing? Okay, I showed it. <laughs> Back in November or something, right? Yeah, okay. Anyway, uh, John Angles here 
was a professor at Wheaton College. And while he was there, he was doing a lot of research and a lot of strategizing and thinking and about methodology and evangelism and stuff like that. So he developed this angle scale. The way you read the scale is you read the columns here and then you go from the ground up, go from the bottom. So when God is doing something to draw people, outsiders, to himself, he usually starts revealing himself in some way. Many times it might be a Christian concert, might be a uh, Christian book that he picked up. He might uh, have had somebody give him a Bible and he just start reading it. As he uh, learns about God, God enlightens his mind. He begins to convict him of his sins and that kind of a thing. And I, who is this God and what, you know, what's he done? He draws into himself and then ultimately he saves him. All right, so the process starts here and it works their way up. The Christian's role in evangelizing is, first of all, they plow the soil. Now, this is the soil of the outsider's heart. They remove the rocks, the objections that an outsider might have, questions, answer those. Then they plant the seed. You know what the seed is? The gospel. Now, notice what happens before the seed gets planted. All this stuff starts happening first. You know what the hardest work is? It's before you actually plant the seed. Okay. Now, what that essentially requires is some kind of a relationship with your outside friend before you get to a conversation where you actually share the gospel. This is the hardest work right here. Okay, Just something to think about. There are three New Testament passages that all talk about evangelism, and they all use the gardening analogy. Okay, Matthew 13, John 4, and 1 Corinthians 3. After the seed's planted, you water. That could be analogous to praying. And then when they are starting to get close and you start to sense that, you have further conversations, you start to cultivate, and then boom, they get saved. Now here is the spiritual journey of the outsider. Number one, negative ten, I'm sorry, negative ten at the very bottom, the conceptually they can farthest be away from God is no belief in a God at all. No spiritual realities, and you'd be just like a Sadducee. All right? Negative nine, God is possible, but they are ignorant of him. This would be atheist level, negative ten. Negative time would probably be a pantheist level. All right. Number eight, questioning concepts about their idea about God. Number seven, personal, uh, they become aware of a personal God. Number six, learning more about God. Number five, grasping the gospel. This is where the seed comes in. Okay. So they're grasping the implications of the gospel. Four, they have, begin to have a positive attitude toward the gospel. Then they recognize sin is in the way. Then they decide it's time to act. And when they do, they repent and they are in the kingdom and the family of God. Okay, so this is like the spiritual journey of the outsider. And now what we're going to see over here in Acts chapter 17, we're going to see Paul go through this exact same grid from the bottom up. All right, and hopefully this will be more understandable to you. But let's ask a question first. Where are Epicurean, who are materialist, and Stoic pantheist outsiders on the angle scale? I sort of told you last, last slide. Anybody know where they are? Where on the negative slide scale? Okay, negative 10 and negative 9, right. So if you've got people here, and that's where Paul's audience was, where do you start with outsiders who are either completely ignorant or totally reject God out of hand? Where do you start with a conversation like that? What's that? Apologetics, okay. And, and essentially, the, the, only, the, the first and hardest hurdle that you have to do is you have to tackle their worldview with creation, you start at the beginning of the Bible. Uh, storytellers, as I've alluded to before, we start in Genesis 1:1. I can I can show you six. I'm sorry, yeah, six implications. I'm sorry, six requirements that God has to have in and of His character and nature. If Genesis 1:1 is historical fact, and every single time I've taught this, uh, I have not had any objections, regardless of where an outsider was on the angle scale. They could be at negative 10. I had one Japanese guy who was in our living room one time, and I did the whole creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, and he came up to me and he goes, real smug kind of look on his face, and he goes, you don't expect me to believe this. And I said, you can believe what you want. I'm not here to convert anybody. All right? I said, you can believe whatever you want. You can believe in Mickey Mouse if you want. And I smiled, and he kind of he took a little offense, and I smiled, and he goes, I said, look, I said, all I, my job, I have a job, okay? You know what God tells me to do? He tells me to teach the Bible as simply and as clearly as I can so you have information that you can go home and make your own choice about. That's all I'm doing. I'm not asking you to believe anything. Now, I could put in parentheses, until you're ready. Okay? 
So I said, but I would ask you to do one thing if you'd do me a favor. And he goes, what's that? I said, just keep coming back. And he goes, I can do that. I said, okay, we'll see you next week. He comes back next week. About four weeks into it, he comes back up to me. He's kind of like, uh, Bill? I said, yeah. He says, can we talk for a minute? And I said, sure. So I could see he was a little kind of sheepish, so we kind of walked over to the corner where nobody would overhear us. And, it, and he said, um, you know what I said before? I said, said before. He said, you know, last time we talked? And I'm like, you know, I didn't, I didn't believe this. And I said, oh, oh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. He's, um, forget that. <laughs> okay, four stories in, he was buying in, and I'd never had to say a word. We have seen, we have seen the Holy. I have, I've literally seen the Holy Spirit working on people with this study by just looking into their eyes week after week after week. It's unbelievable what happens. Okay, you don't argue, you don't pick. You don't, I do apologetics. I love apologetics. I've been studying apologetics for 30 years. I could go toe-to-toe with almost any evolutionist on the planet and hold my own, okay? And I'm not trying to brag. I'm just saying the answers are in the Scripture, okay? And you stand on the Scripture. The foundation is sure in you, and you don't, you don't have to lose battles, and you don't even have to lose friends. But I have seen God just transforming these people, marching them up, marching them up the angle scale, and I can just see it. You know, they come in a little week later, and their eyes are a little brighter, and they're, they've got a little more smile on their face, and they're asking more questions, and they're, you can see they're processing. So, so this is what Paul is going to do. You're going to start at creation. All right, so watch what happens now. Look where he starts. Doesn't this look like a verse you've seen somewhere before? God who made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hand. How about the first two lines? Where have you seen that before? Genesis 1.1. Okay? All right. So he, Paul starts with creation. And so Greek notions of creation were either matter was eternal. That would be the atheists. Those would be the Epicureans. Uh, uh, thank you. And then secondly, intermediate beings like artisans, kind of, you know, middlemen kind of guys made the world that we see. And that would be the negative nine. That would be the Stoics. So, so you got both notions of creation represented in the Stoics and the Epicureans. All right? So now on the angle scale, part starts right down here. He assumes that all of them are at negative ten, and he starts out with creation. Makes no apologies, doesn't defend God, doesn't explain God. He said, look, God was there, and he made what you see. End of discussion. <laughs> okay? That is the biggest hurdle because you just, you just have to confront their bottom line worldview so that they now have a choice. Now, I don't know if you've known, known this or not. In, I've done a lot of research in storytelling, evangelism, and storytelling, and the power of stories, and why when we do systematic theology, I had this systematic theology in Bible school, all right? But when you do systematic theology, and you take all the verses about angels, and all the verses about Jesus, and you line them all up, and you study that, okay? That's good for study. It's not good for Bible study with other people, especially if they're unbelievers, because they're not going to go deep like that. What they need to hear is a story. Stories are ubiquitous. They are everywhere. When anybody writes their own story, what do we call that? An autobiography. What is, it, what is an autobiography? It's, it's a story of somebody who wrote it about themselves. If you're going to have somebody write your biography, it's your biography. That's your story. Human beings and stories are basically identical. So when you teach Bible truth in story format and you lift the doctrine off the storyline, now you've got an engaging situation where unbelievers can go home and think, wow, that, that guy in the Bible, that the character, man, that's just like me. And all of a sudden now they are in the story that you're teaching. And we have seen this throughout the entire planet, every single ethnic group, language group that's got a copy of Storytellers, um, we've seen the same thing. The stories keep coming back, and it's all working the same across the board, and that's really the fun thing. All right, back to 25, verse 25. Nor is he, God, worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So he's continuing on up the scale. So now God is possible, but they're ignorant of him, so he's going to start filling in the gaps. God needs nothing. He doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need your temples. He doesn't need your sacrifices. He is complete and perfect in and of himself. And he could give a hoot about you, but listen, don't go away yet. He's going to give you a hoot about you, all right? So he goes on, verse 26. And he has made from every, uh, I'm sorry, he's made from one every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and have their pre-appointed time 
and the boundaries of their dwellings. All right, look what's going on. This statement was a blow against Greek nationalism. Greeks divided people into two groups, themselves and barbarians. <laughs> you know, I, we, have worked, we have worked with, um, with international students, and you know, uh, for, for 25 years, and they, they had their own ethnic slurs in pictures. Okay? Now, we've worked mostly with Chinese, but you know what Chinese do? They, they, have, they have little images for each other. Sometimes they'll talk about hard-boiled eggs. You know what a hard-boiled egg is in Chinese terms? <laughs> okay. That refers to American-born Chinese, ABCs for short. They, they look white on the outside because they grew up in an American culture, but they're Chinese on the inside. They're yellow. Okay. Uh, you got bananas, the same kind of a thing. Okay, white on the inside and yellow on the outside, you know. And they got all these metaphors, all these little pictures. And it doesn't make a difference where you go, what ethnic group you're talking about. They think that because their ethnic group is the one that they're from, it's them and everybody else. And the Greeks were the same thing. Greeks and everybody else is a barbarian. Okay? Now that just calls from the fallenness of man and egocentrism and pride. You know, I'm number one, right? We got that in America down pat. And so Americans are number one. And me and my people, we're together, we're tight, and everybody else is, who cares? All right. So the Greeks were just the same way. All right, so now Paul's moving them up the scale. They're questioning concepts. He's challenging them. He's look, he made everybody the same. There are no barbarians. There are no superior race called the Greek people. Everybody's the same. Now, that could have been a big turnoff for the Greeks. But he's still talking. They're still listening. He's going to keep going. Verse 27, so that, now he did that. He put everybody in their place so that they, every single group, every single ethnic group, language group, culture group, should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Now, this is so packed with information. We're going to camp on this for about a couple of minutes. There's some questions at you. Your verse over here, what we just read, let's ask some questions and see what we can find out. Under what conditions do people grope? You know what I mean by grope? What, what, okay, so what, what would happen? What would need to happen? If we just started groping, what would need to happen here first? Yeah, lights would go out. We would be in the dark. And the first thing is, okay, okay. Oh, I'm sorry, don't, I'm, don't, don't touch me. You know. So we'd be, we'd be looking for our feeling secure for our hands. All right? Now, what is he saying by groping there about the people that he's talking to? They're in the dark. Spiritual darkness. Okay? So, so this is what's going on. The word grope there, I checked it in the, in the Greek. It is grope. It is exactly t- looking and feeling with your hands so that you can find out what's in front of you, what's behind you, what's around you, because you cannot see. That's what it means. All right? Here's another question. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me back up. Quote by C.S. Lewis. This is a great quote. I thought I threw this in there for free. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun, or the, the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but by it I see everything else. Does that, does that sound like Christians? Okay? We know the sun's up there, but see, when the sun is up there, we can see everything. Everything takes on a new spiritual meaning, a new dimension, something you never saw before as a lost person, as an outsider. All right? And so what he's saying is, Realize that outsiders are blind to spiritual realities. Okay? Now, check this out. Another question. What does it tell us about God that he is not far from every outsider? I haven't looked over here. Anybody here got an answer over there? What does it say about God that he is not far from every outsider? I'm sorry? He's everywhere. Omnipresence. Anything else? Anybody else think of something? He's close. He's close to every outsider. Now think of the implications for that. Okay, you got you got lost friends, you got outsider friends, you work with them in the neighborhood, maybe a bank teller or something like that, your favorite grocer. Okay. God is close to those people too. And so when we go out there as witnesses in the noun and be the presence of God among these outsiders and God is close, we are actually getting into the way God wants us to see and to think and to recognize opportunities. That's what he's saying. When you guys go out there, you're not doing it alone. 
Okay? That's what he's saying. You can get this job done. That's what he's saying. Third question. What does it tell us about God that he placed every people group on the planet so they would find him? What does that tell us about God? He wants to be found. Okay? This is not mission impossible. He's got everyone in place, us and them, in the way that he wants to use us to help them find him. He's right there in the mix. We don't do this alone. All right? I mean, to me, when I started seeing this stuff, I was like, oh, this is really cool. How many people see this in Acts? I never did until I really got into this, all right? So now, verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Now, got a, a couple of things here. Here's the Acts where I just read, for in him we live and move and have our being. Uh, being. Uh, uh, Epimenides the Cretan, this is where he's quoting from right here. And let me say this, that a philosopher in Greek was a poet, and a Greek poet was a philosopher. They doubled. They had two-time jobs, okay? They, they moonlighted or whatever, I don't know. But anyway, this is what Epimenides said. He says, They fashion a tomb for thee, O holy and high one, the Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies, but thou art not dead, thou livest forever, talking to one of his gods. And he says, For in thee we live and have our being. Quoting Greek philosophers. Check this one out. Here's over here, we are his offspring. Eratus from Cilicia said this, speaking of Zeus, Never, O men, let us leave him unmentioned. Always, I'm sorry, always are full of Zeus. Every direction we all have to do with Zeus, for we are also his offspring. Now, let's ask a question. Here's your verse. Here's the question. Why did Paul quote from outside philosophers and poets? What's he trying to do? What's he doing? I heard somebody say. Anybody? Common ground. There you go. Okay. He's trying to win favor. Right? Okay, so watch this. To show that some basic things are understood by outsiders, very basic things. And number two, to build a bridge, common ground, to make God easier to understand. Now, here's another question I don't ask on the slide. What do you think Paul was doing in his spare time to quote philosophers? <laughs> he was reading philosophers, okay? He was staying current with contemporary culture and literature and art and ideas and philosophy, okay? And as far as we know, he didn't have any notes. He's just out there spitting it out. Boom, 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 boom. And he said, look, you guys know, Eratus, this guy, that guy, you know, he starts quoting them. What do you think the impact was of the people in the audience? Hey, he's, he's quoting my guy. You know, and I, I want to pay attention. See? Building a bridge, common ground, the same thing. That was Paul's whole M.O. Verse 29, Therefore, since that we are, hit, we are uh, the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. I'm going to uh, go into this in just a minute. But I want you to show, see that man's devising here, this word devising means a product of man's ideas, thoughts, imagination, or feelings, or passions. This is why the very first commandment of the ten, uh, uh, the ten commands that Moses gave of the Decalogue was do not make any images of me. You know why? You know where it starts? Right here. It doesn't start up there. We can't see God. We can't smell God. We can't touch God. We can't do whatever, so we think we're going to carve something that looks or acts or represents God, and God says, don't even start, you're wrong from the beginning. And no matter what you come up with, it's going to be inferior and not correct. So that's what he's saying, but this is what they were doing. They were thinking they knew what the divine nature was like, and so they start building all these statues and stuff. So Paul's point here is simple logic. If God's nature were like gold or silver, then idols would be appropriate. Same physical stuff, being made of the same stuff, but his nature is more like human nature, okay? Living, breathing, thinking, choosing, feeling. So idols are useless and worthless. Dumpsters, throw them out, and let's get back to real stuff about a God who really loves you, who thinks, who loves, who feels, who moves. All right? That's what he's talking about. So now he's making them more aware of a personal God through God is close. Uh, verse 30, truly the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Ladies, you're included in that, just so I don't want you to be left out. Now, God know, knew Gentiles were ignorant of him, but overlooked their idolatry. He never overlooked Israel's idolatry because they were never ignorant. 
You see why every time Israel got into idolatry, what happened? Boom! The, the boom came down, captivity, they're all carried away to Babylon, Assyria, all that kind of stuff. And so what's going on? Why didn't he never do that with the Gentiles? Because they didn't know any better. See? So what Paul is saying with this address, it's time for you Gentiles to wake up. It's time for a change. Now that Christ has come to fully reveal God, it is time for all men, in other words, all nations, all Gentiles, to change their thinking, which is the definition of repent. And so in verse 31, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all, everyone, by raising him from the dead. And check this out. Here's your verse here. All of the Stoics would have agreed with Paul if he had spoken of the immortality of the soul. But neither the Stoics nor the Epicureans believed in a physical resurrection. So this was a choking point for them at this point in his talk. Aeschylus, uh, 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 I think is the way he pronounced that. Uh, uh, the God of Apollo said, Once a man dies and the earth drinks up his blood, there is no resurrection. And that was pretty much a hard stance that Greeks uh, accepted back in the day. And so now he's got him up. He's working his way up from negative 10 to negative 6. He says it's time to repent. You've got enough information to change your thinking. And I've laid it out very clearly, very simply, very logical, very reasonable, very rational. It's time for you to make a move. Now, this is where the talk stops, interestingly. And notice here. Notice that Paul never gets to the gospel because they knew they were not ready for it. He stops. He got them to the point where you guys need to change your thinking, change your mind. And so, verse 32, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some of them mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. Now, if you're wondering what they meant by that, those who said they would hear him again were probably just simply trying to be polite and say, Get that guy out of here. Show him the door. Make sure it hits him on the backside when he's leaving. Okay, get him out of here. We've heard enough. All right? Out of here, but be a smile. Uh, thank you. May the gods bless you. I don't see how, but... All right, now, watch this. This is really interesting. So Paul departed from them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysus the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and those with him. Now, I'm kind of into names when I'm studying the Bible now. I'm checking everybody's name. Dionysus means develop, devoted to Bacchus. You know who Bacchus is? Anybody say New Orleans Mardi Gras? Okay, wine and party and beads and all that kind of stuff. That was Bacchus right there. That was his party. That was his celebration. The god of grape juice, uh, grape harvest, wine, and winemaking. He was a member of the Areopagus, the ruling uh, board. Damaris means heifer or young cow. Now, I want to ask mothers a question. Would you ever name your daughter a cow? I mean, <laughs> what were they thinking? Okay, but anyway, so um, it's just really interesting. So here's a question. Here we go. Ready for this? There's your verses, okay? They join them and believe. Here's the ultimate question. If Paul did not get to the gospel, what does it mean that some men joined him and believed? What did they believe? He's only got him at negative six. What do you think happened? Anybody finish the picture? He's got him halfway up the scale. Yeah, they, they probably chased him out, chased him outside, and they said, keep going, Right? Keep going up the scale. You, you baited us. We, we want to change our thinking, but what do we think now? See? So what they believed was the gospel because the ones who responded were the ones who got Paul Harvey's rest of the story. He only gave the gospel to the ones who were ready for it. You know what happens when we shove the gospel down somebody's throat and they're not ready for it? They don't go up the scale. They're not ready you drive them away. And that's where sensitivity to the Holy Spirit in the process of your dealings with outsiders and your conversations with them is really, really critical. Okay? So here's your summary. Paul's purpose was to take these outsiders at negative 10 as far as he could toward a biblical worldview and a clear picture of God. We don't see him even mentioning Jesus' name in the whole talk. And finally, what he told them gave them plenty to think about. They were very far from God conceptually at negative 10. The whole idea of evangelism. i got a friend who's in Singapore. He is the son of, um, what's the apologist guy's name? She's going to forget too. What's that? Yeah, Norm Geisler's son 
You know Norm Geisler? He's like, he's got 80 books out on apologetics. Okay, I know his son. He's got a ministry over in Singapore. And his, his definition of evangelism is this, okay? This is worth writing down if you want to. If you, don't, if you don't want to write it down, email me. I'll email you back and I'll give it to you. Every day, in every way, helping my unsaved or outsider friend take one step closer to Jesus. And see, that's something that, that's in a kind of evangelism that everybody can do. Evangelism is just shoving the gospel down their throat. It's not even making sure, dragging them into you know, the kingdom when they're not ready. It's just making sure they're moving up the scale and leaving them hungry for the next Christian that's going to cross their path. And if we all did that, it would be amazing what would happen if they continued to see consistent, God-fearing, Jesus-loving representatives that just crossed their paths and all of a sudden he just left them hungry for a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and say, where do you go to church? Can I come to church? You go, wow, where did this happen? Don't think you're God's gift to evangelism. Okay? It's that there God has been drawing them up and you get the benefit of possibly bringing them to church. All right. Now, here's the, here's the conclusion. Romans 1, because although they knew God, this is speaking of the people of Athens, Paul wrote this after he was in Athens, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And birds and four-footed animals and creeping things, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves. So the conclusion is radical unbelief, and we're getting there as a culture today, always leads to greater perversion and immorality. The sooner and the better and the more effective we can be witnesses for Christ corporately, singly, with God, he's near every outsider, the more we take this, this whole serious effort seriously, we've got a chance to be salt and light and even leaven in the culture. And I say leaven because leaven influences whatever it gets in. And that's what Christians are supposed to do. Okay, last slide. Where do you see God working in the story? You guys get to make the application points. I apologize for being late. Anybody got a concluding thought that you'd like to wrap the session up with tonight? Anything that hits you? Yeah, mention the man and mention that he brought him back from the dead, but you never see his name. Well, verse 18, Jesus and the resurrection, right? He preached unto them, Jesus and the resurrection, both the epicurean and the stone, right? Verse 18? Chapter 17. I need a Bible. <laughs> Okay, that was in the marketplace. That's before his talk at the Areopagus. Okay? So it's a different group of people that we Yeah, they, they met the philosophers at the marketplace and then they went to the Areopagus. Okay? So that's yeah, he, So he's given that. They're, they're the street people. That, matter of fact, the, the philosophers are probably coming from the Areopagus. They end up in the marketplace to hear Paul and they go, who is this clown? So they bring him back. And so he was there. So in that group, he never used the name of Jesus. Okay. But good observation. Okay. Anybody else got a, got a closing thought that you saw? If not, I'll, can I just pray? Is that at the end? Hmm? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, one other reason why I'm here. Um, a week from Saturday, we have a busload of international students and scholars coming into town from Penn State University. Okay, if, you, if, you, if you've not been under a rock, you understand that up north they've been hit with the worst blizzard and snow conditions for like the last 40 to 100 years, depending upon where you live. So I have a buddy up there. His name is Bill Saxton. He's the longest standing foreign student ministry campus director at Penn State, and we've got a working relationship for about the last, I would say, 12 to 14 years. He's come down with busloads of internationals for spring break uh, to get out of the cold. Uh, so it's March the 7th, which is a Saturday night, 
They, they are going to arrive here in town. We're looking for families who can host them for three nights. If you have a spare bedroom, a sofa, a couch, something like that, um, I have a business card in the back. You can get in touch with me. But they're here. They arrive Saturday night. They will go to church with you on Sunday. It's part of the whole cultural experience. Okay? They will, and then uh, on Sunday afternoon, we have a park. I'm sorry, we have a, a pavilion at John U. Lloyd Park in Dania Beach, already reserved. It's the Osprey Pavilion. We're going to have all the host families from all the churches and all the internationals all come together and have a big picnic. And the kids are going to be on the beach and they're going to think they died and went to heaven because they can go to the beach in February and wear bathing suits and dive in. <laughs> okay? Meanwhile, it's 40 below back where they came from. Okay? They just think they died and went to heaven. Um, and then so Sunday night, chat with them, bed them down, feed them what they want. Monday morning they get up, they get on the bus, they go all the way down to, to uh, John Penny Camp in the Keys. You will not have any responsibilities with them Monday except to feed them dinner. Tuesday, feed them breakfast, they're on the bus and they're gone. The time will go very fast. It's like half a dozen meals, three nights, and some fun at the beach and fun at church. That's all it is. Uh, this is the first time that our home church is not the anchor church, so I've been going to extra churches recruiting families. We'll, we still need several more families. If you take one, two, we have Indians, we have Chinese, and I think we've got a couple of Koreans on board. All right. So if anybody's interested in that, please take a card or talk to me or talk to Jenny. And uh, this, is the, this is just about the easiest, most fun way you can do cross-cultural ministry. And you, don't, you can do it right from your own living room. So if you're open to that, okay, uh, please consider that. Pray about that. And if you, if you don't get a card and you don't talk to us, Dave can get us contact information. Okay. So uh, thank you for your attention. I know I'm really, really late. I'm going to close in prayer real quick. And uh, well, then we can get out of here. Lord, we are grateful for the way that you have written your word in story form. So much of it, Lord, that we can lift the doctrine, see the doctrine at work in the storyline, and then go ahead and look at what the things are that you are saying to us in our storyline, in our culture, in our context, Lord. And we thank you that these principles are easily transferable. And I thank you, Lord, that you've written your word that way so that we can understand, even we who are inside the church, Lord, many times we need the Holy Spirit to help us. And so I pray that this time... Uh, tonight has been uh, helpful and worthwhile to all of us, Lord. We thank you for being our real teacher. Pray that you get the glory from the things we've heard and learned tonight, and we'll give you the praise and pray that your kingdom will continue to come through the efforts of all of us and at uh, Boulevard Bible Chapel. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.